time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Uh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into Hour 2 of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is a lecturer of sociology and feminist scholar at Case Western Reserve University and the author of a new book that's called Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality by Heather McKee. Hurwitz and Heather Hurwitz joins me by phone. Heather, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much, Tom. Uh, can you hear me? I can. I can hear you pretty well. Okay, perfect. I'm so glad to be here with you this morning. Um, Heather, define intersectionality for me. Mm-hmm. Intersectionality is a term that's been around since the 80s, um, and even black feminists, activists were using this term way earlier than that. But in the late 80s, Kimberly Crenshaw, a lawyer, a professor, um, developed this term to explain how the discrimination that black women were facing was different from black men and different from white women it was this unique combination of sexism and racism. And at the crux of it, it's the idea that we can't explain something like class inequality as just about class. We've got to think about the gender, race, sexuality, age, disability, all of these different kind of um, uh, axes of privilege or oppression that 
are a part of people's lives to really explain their unique their unique kinds of inequalities, their unique kind of oppression um, at that intersection of those different axes of, of power or privilege. And the, um, the phrase 99% is, is typically used to talk about income inequality the 1% versus the 99% as as was uh, brought out during the the early days of the occupy wall street movement that's right this is one of the lasting legacies of the movement even if some of your listeners uh, some of my students don't even know about the occupy movement but they know this phrase the 99% versus the 1%. Um, of course, Bernie Sanders has really drawn on this and popularized it, and people from the Occupy movement supported his campaigns. And so he's kind of worked to develop this phrase. And uh, But it really started in the Occupy movement, and the 99% was a call for unity for a whole lot of people, right? Anyone except for that 1% to join up in this movement and make change. The election certification and swearing in of uh, Kamala Harris as vice president checked a lot of boxes. Uh, um, I'm not sure how many firsts <laughs> she she qualifies for, but, but certainly uh, black, Asian, and um, the first woman vice president. Um, when Barack Obama got elected, I, I remember thinking, thankfully this is over, this whole concern about racism. Black people can do anything in this country. And I was wrong. Um, it, it, racism seemed to get worse in the wake of Barack Obama's election. Do you, are you concerned that, that um, gender discrimination... Um, could see a similar pushback from from her election and, and her rising to that high office? I am not concerned that gender discrimination or racial discrimination or the intersection of those is going to get worse. But what I think will happen is it might feel worse. It might feel worse because we're going to be more conscious about it. Uh -huh. And just like the election of Barack Obama um, didn't, as you say, you know, reverse racism or end discrimination against black people, but it was really a spark to open up that conversation. And I think it's not surprising that the Black Lives Matter movement started late in President Obama's administration, um, there was a, more of a political opening to have those kinds of conversations. So I'm actually really excited about the diversity of the Biden administration's um, leaders, because I think it's not going to be easy to open up these kinds of conversations. But if we don't talk about it, it just persists in silence, as it has for you know, racism and sexism are long-lasting, deeply embedded ways of acting that we just have these kind of default ways of acting um, that we've learned over and over again because 
so much of our world is structured around a racial or gender hierarchy. And so I'm hoping that kind of comes to light and we can face it and we can do something different. And ironically, this last election, as vitriolic as it became, was uh, for president between two old white guys. Um, and, and some people were critical of that. And then there was this huge call for newly elected President Biden to have a lot of diversity in his cabinet and in his ad- administration. Some people are saying he didn't go far enough. And, um, and, and some people are saying that it's the most div- diverse ever. Which is it for you? Right. I... We've got to go back to the Occupy movement, because I think there were some things that we learned from that movement about leadership that can help us understand this moment. In the Occupy movement, there were also a lot of white men who were speaking loudly, taking on a lot of roles, being those expected and legitimate leaders. And I think that's kind of what we saw in this past election. The people who were in charge of making these leadership decisions, you know, the Democratic Party, the Republican Party. Um, there's, there's a long-standing expectation that white men are the legitimate leaders. And I think that to kind of counter President Trump, who really embodied those forms of power, patriarchal power, white supremacist power, um, and kind of spoke to that and represented that for his followers and his party, um, I think it was tough to have kind of any other leader by the Democratic Party. I think it was po- it might have been possible, but I'm trying to explain kind of the thought process. Yeah, you know, it just seemed it just seemed kind of ironic, and and I was interested in your thoughts on it, Heather. Yeah. That you know there was this this huge field of Democrats in the. Uh, right in the primary that was extremely diverse, including Kamala Harris. She was one, and, and, um, you know, there were several women and uh, people of color and and different uh, ethnic uh, backgrounds. And then it all whittled down to, you know, the, the... one of the longest-serving people from, from government and, and an old white guy. Well, I can't speak to all those decisions, um, (laughs) but I can say that we have ingrained in us, think about the leaders of most corporations, government offices, the people who we respect, who are often, you know, speaking on the radio, who who are featured in news articles. A lot of these people are white men, and to not have white men leaders lead... They need to take a step back, number one. And number two, we need new representations of leaders who are women, indigenous persons, people of color. And we need a real legitimacy around that. And I'm I'm hopeful that Kamala Harris will actually help to provide that new vision of leadership. I think President Obama and Michelle Obama did that also. Um, but even in in our local organizations, people who we are listening to on the radio, who are people who are leading our you know, community groups, we have a lot to learn about launching unexpected leaders into leadership and per, as followers 
providing them that legitimacy and backing and affirming their leadership. And this this really happened in the Occupy movement where um, it was really tough for non-white men leaders to be able to lead. And I think it was this um, a real problem amongst us uh, as followers. Who do we believe can really lead us and who are we going to support? And, and I think that's where change could happen. Isn't there um, something to, to be talked about and, and worked on with regard to the way we respect other people's opinions and, and how open or not our minds are? Yeah, I love that point. Um, there's a lot of noise out there. It's hard to respect those other opinions, and it's hard to sort through the noise. I think this is something that activists today, people who are interested in politics today, even if you're not active, we have a challenge that we didn't have even 10 years ago. Um, you know, the Occupy movement was the first movement to extensively use social media, Facebook, Twitter, um, citizen journalism to organize. And it's just just totally expanded over the last 10 years. We have a really complicated political scene going on on social media, and I think it makes it more tough to um, kind of find the voices who are really the ones we want to listen to, who have that right message and frame, and to know even how to listen to this cacophony of, of voices out there, um, it's tough. You know, radio played a, a role in changing uh, how people felt about race with regard to uh, music and, and entertainment. Television did more of the same. How is it that the Internet and social media hasn't... Um, contributed to that that evolution of bringing people more together? So thanks for pointing that out. I think it's a really important history and something that we have to continue to share with others, especially younger people, how important print media, newspapers, radio has been to the social change that we've seen. What I think is different about social media is the people filling up social media are not trained journalists. You know, anyone can have a voice. It was great in the Occupy movement because some of the internal challenges in the movement and like some of the um, infighting that was happening or grievances, people aired them, aired them really quickly on social media. Um, but it's, it's uh, a different way of spreading social movements than um, seeing, you know, images from the South that were that are curated by journalists who are sharing the news. Um, we've got a lot more commentary, opinion, um, and just participants. Heather, involved. I have to put a comma there because I have to go to break. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more? Let's do it. All yes. right. Sounds good. Heather Hurwitz is my guest. She is the author of a new book called Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get Summer. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. I continue my conversation now with uh, Heather Hurwitz, the author of Are We the 99%. Heather, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, I love the show, Tom. I am just (laughs) smiling over here and enjoying it. Um, well, thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. Just before the break, we were talking about the uh, uh, evolution of um, awareness about, uh, you know, some people would call it political correctness uh, um, and and you would express it a lot better than I can. Um, but but I was saying that there was this sense of we were all coming together. We were watching, uh, we were listening to the same songs on the radio. We were watching the same television programs. We had, um, you know, news uh, sources uh, in daily newspapers that were pretty well vetted. You know, um, you can't believe everything you read, but you could count on a lot of it to be true. And now we have this whole era of uh, fake news and and different groups fighting to be recognized. And we were talking about social media and why social media um, didn't contribute to that that sense of bringing more people together. Right. I think it, there's definitely the the side of it where it's more challenging. We're hearing a lot of voices who maybe are expressing hateful views or um, conspiracy theories are getting probably more traction on social media than um, in traditional media, kind of before the Internet. So <laughs> I, was, I haven't I was studied ta- this. Exactly, but. Yeah, I was talking to uh, an author, and, and I'm trying to think of his name. I, th- I think his last name was Yablonkov. Um He'd written a book about Russian conspiracies. He was from Russia. And, uh, and he acknowledged that Americans have the best conspiracy theories. <laughs> which was, it was just kind of a funny parenthetical thing that came up in our conversation, but it, it's almost as if that's one of the things that America is known for around the world is that we have mm-hmm. uh, the best conspiracy theories. Mm. <laughs> well, it reminds me of, and these are not conspiracy theories, but they are m- moments when people um, have are missing some of the kind of inequalities that are happening around them or missing when people are being excluded or um, are not allowed to speak or their voices aren't being heard, they're being marginalized. Um, It's not quite the same as a conspiracy theory, but it's a way of seeing the world. But it's getting a better understanding of implicit 
versus explicit biases, isn't it? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And what I think is good about social media, and this definitely happened in the Occupy movement, was uh, there were women saying, we're being overlooked here. Our, we have grievances about uh, sleeping overnight in the middle of an urban place, and you know we're not really sure if we feel good about this, and uh, we need some more planning from the movement. And and there was a kind of blindness to seeing their experiences from their position as women and queer people, and many people of color were also concerned about these issues. And so social media became an outlet to actually find other people who shared these views and be able to kind of come together to then lobby the main movement and say, we need to, we need to fix some of these things that are going on. We're not able to include everyone. I was really surprised to learn that during the um, civil rights movement during the 60s and, and the various marches, um, and I, I'm thinking about the marches in Washington, D.C., um, and, and the one, uh, one of the famous ones where uh, Martin Luther King gave his uh, I Have a Dream speech, mm. women were marching on the other side of the street. Wow, I never heard that before. I, I was um, stunned. I know about a lot of, of tension within the civil rights movement around women being included and represented. But Belinda Robnett is an amazing um, scholar who's kind of written the book about this. About It's called How Long, How Long, about, about women being marginalized in the civil rights movement, um, which of course then sparked the feminist movement and black women uh, kind of saying, you know, no, we're going to, we're going to actually, you know, march out front and center. Did the, the hashtag Me Too movement open doors for women to make their cases about other things beyond uh, sexual discrimination? Absolutely. The last 10 years, we've seen women and feminists protesting in public ways, in voicing their concerns, and re- really pushing to change policies and expectations in workplaces, families, and, uh, and schools in ways that were more uh, on a community level or um, done um, in small groups. Um, I, there are a lot of feminist activists who are active, huge blogger network of feminists, but it wasn't as public and in the media, in the national media, in the spotlight, you know, in the streets with the Women's March in 2017. And feminism is definitely coming out much more kind of into the open, um, whereas in the past, very important, long-standing movement, but kind of more on a community level for a lot of feminists. Well, I, I know that, uh, that that things are certainly changing. We have more women in Congress than ever before. Here in Michigan, we have a, a governor, a secretary of state, and an attorney general that are all women. Um, it, it, things, are, things are changing. They're improving. Are we on the right road, or 
is is there still lots more work to be done and and how does that move forward i've got to say there's a lot more work to be done it's so important in michigan i'm so glad that you brought that into the conversation so many leaders in michigan women leaders are changing our views about what is leadership and how to be a good leader and how it is that women lead um, differently with different uh, concerns in mind and care for others in mind. I think that's a huge takeaway that I'm having from you know watching the women leaders in Michigan. Um, but there's a further to go. There's still huge problems with um, women facing greater burdens during this pandemic. We do not have a, a safety net or um, a government system in place to help with childcare, education, um, nursing. Think about the, the positions who are really super stressed right now. A lot of those positions are being filled by women. And it doesn't have to be that way. But it takes a lot of work and major change to change that. So uh, maybe women leaders uh, will be bringing some of those changes into effect. The title of, of your book, Heather, um, is Are We the 99%? Who are we? This question is a, a play on the key organizing slogan for the Occupy movement, which was, we are the 99%. And it was this call that Everyone is part of a common class. If you're not the 1% most wealthy, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world, if you're not that, um, some of these people who are making astronomical um, amounts of money and wealth, we have a reason to come together and create change um, for this 99%. So. But the, the question of the book is, um, how can we really all be included in that and, in, and really feel like we are together in a broad, diverse mass movement? And a lot of the book and a lot of the interviews I did, because I spoke with nearly 100, um, especially women and queer people and people of color who were not so much heard in the media, they said, you know, I kind of feel like I'm part of the, the 99%. I support a lot of things about changing economic inequalities that this movement is about, but they're not really getting me completely involved. They're not recognizing the experiences of racism or sexism that I've experienced in my life, and so I don't really feel part of that 99%. Um, and I'll just, uh, last thing I'll say on that is that you know, the book is kind of a challenge to us to think about how have we come together and unified with each other over the last 10 years to try to make change, but where do we still need to go? How do we recognize our diverse neighbors around us, and how can we kind of bring together a diverse kind of unity? Well, and, and within that, there are so many communities um, there are, 
you know, people of color. There are ethnic uh, diver diversities, uh, Asian Americans and, and uh, Latinx, and, and uh, you can go on and on. There are gender differences between people, and each one has a group, and each one has a cause, but in the spirit of intersectionality, is there a way that all of these groups can come together and get all of their needs met? Mm -hmm. We need to And become one community, basically. Right. I think it starts by naming individuals' experiences, uh, telling the stories of what people are going through and how you know, a second-generation Puerto Rican woman's experience is going to be different than a um, black woman from Haiti's ex experience you know, who has been born and raised in the United States. We have a lot of diversity and a lot of different experiences we need to hear those experiences. We need to recognize them. And then we need to uh, find how do we build coalitions with other organizations and groups? How do we really build those partnerships with people who um, are in specific community groups or activist groups uh, representing diverse people, people of all different, you know, genders, races, ethnicities, as you're saying. Um, and I think that that's kind of the way we do it. We have that intersectional approach. Are there other countries that are, uh, can you think of any countries that are maybe handling their diversity better than we do here in the United States? Or, or um, is the American uh, dream of, of freedom and um, democracy uh, setting the standard uh, pretty high? I love that question, and I hope that uh, your listeners are all having their own answers to that question, because I think we all have a standpoint to think about that. And we live in a world that's globalizing so fast um, it's really accelerated since the 1990s and even over the last 10 years with social media. I think that these problems we're seeing in the United States are common around the world. Uh, great tensions around race, immigration, uh, citizenship, uh, sexual harassment, uh, and of course the haves and the have-nots, uh, those who are living in poverty, even those in the middle class, versus this global, you know, 1% is a, it, it's a global issue. Is the middle class hanging on? Well, it's not really the focus of my research, Tom, but I would <laughs> I'm say... I'm not trying to put you on the spot, Heather. <laughs> I want to, you know, I coming I come at this as a, a scientist, a social scientist. So I want to be, you know, straight up with you and your listeners about what I can say and what I can't. I my response is that um, the middle class is changing, and I think there's less safety nets. I think we've got a troubled job market. 
ever since the Great Recession, which is what I started studying back in 2011, we've got a lot of problems with, with jobs, changes with technology. I think it's become more tough for the middle class. That's, that's a lot of what the Occupy movement was actually about, was kind of railing against the economic inequality generated by the Great Recession. I don't think it's getting better with the state of the economy in the pandemic right now. Well, the pandemic certainly has complicated things, not just here in, in the States, but around the around the globe um, with regard to, you know, places being closed and people being put out of work. But even at a point where where we reach herd immunity and, and we've survived COVID-19 and come out on the other side, people are talking about a new normal. Um, even if we got back to a, a pre-pandemic normal, these inequalities still existed and, and were being exacerbated by the ongoing development of uh, technology and automation. Um, do we need to have a, a Congress of all these different groups um, to rethink how the economy works? I think that's a great idea. One thing that I loved about being a part of the Occupy movement was there were people who were starting to think about ways that we could radically change our economy. I was part of a group for a while called the Alternative Banking Working Group. And some of the things they were trying to do were have people shift their money into local credit unions instead of the big banks to kind of take some of the power away from them. There were also people advocating a universal basic income in large part because computers, robots can take over so many jobs. Uh, how are people going to be able to sustain themselves and I know there have been some experiments in smaller countries. I want to say Switzerland. I could be wrong about that. It might have been another small country in Europe that actually tried this universal basic income. Um, and, you know, mixed results, but a try. And I think it's some of that kind of out-of-the-box thinking that that is needed, that that might be possible, <laughs> might be you know, really, we might be pushed to that because of this pandemic. Yeah, I, w I wonder if there aren't certain aspects of, of professional life that will be forever changed by the pandemic. And I'm thinking about, you know, remote work, um, being able to work from home, and, and even uh, uh, school um, and, and how that's being done uh, through Zoom and, and other ways of, of communicating and teaching. Um, in, in fact, it, there's a lot of discussion going on in Michigan today about that because we're getting a little snow where I am. Not not big snow comparatively, but, but big for this year so far. And, and it, it came at a time this morning where it might have been a snow day, but snow days might be a thing of the past. Um, uh, is is that, um, how does that influence uh, 
our need to bring these groups together. I love your questions, Tom. This is great. Um, this is amazing to think about and talk about. Um, you know, I think back to the the encampments that the Occupy movement created. Some of your listeners might have even been at them. They there were a number um, in Michigan and more than a thousand around the world, and that was a place where people were saying. Um, well, how do we, you know, run a media campaign out of a tent? Let's develop bicycle-powered generators to do it and run our laptops. Um, how do we feed, you know, thousands of people who we want to be here and talking about changing our world and making it better and ending this great recession in some way? Um, well, let's let's create a field kitchen and. Um, let's also feed homeless populations because we're sharing the park with them now. And I just mention a couple of these innovations from the movement because, number one, I think change is possible. I think people can come together and reconfigure things like school, um, remote working, and still have social cohesion within our world, um, creating um, you know, Zoom events or distanced um, public events. Uh, we've done some incredible things during the pandemic, and I do think more is possible. Um, and I think it's going to take groups coming together, as you say. And and I just I think that that's possible. I think it takes um, it takes a vision. It takes. You know, for the Occupy movement, it was the 99% called everyone together. And that was an amazing call to really come together so broadly. Um, you know, there were, there were faults with that call. There was not recognizing race or gender in that call. There were, there were a lot of other issues. Um, but I would hope that some other call for unity um, is on that horizon. I think Black Lives Matter is part of that call, and the organization called the Frontline is leading the way on some of that. Um, I think probably the the chaos at the Capitol was kind of that call of you know how do how can we come together and what kind of country do we want or not. Has there ever been a time um, where we had demonstrations going on concurrently with opposing views the way we have the, this past year? Oh, absolutely. Every protest that I've been to, from the, the, the promise keepers versus the feminists in Washington, D.C., in the late 90s, to the um, the Black Lives Matter protests of late, um, where there are a lot of um, even black persons who are on the fence about the movement and real tension and debate uh, within the movement. Um, and of course, uh, I think with the growing white supremacy movement in this country, there are going to be those protests and counter-protests. That's kind of one of the dynamics of social movements. 
how much we hear both sides um, is maybe something new. Um, Heather, I have to take another break. Can you stick around for a few more minutes, and and we'll uh, sure. wrap it up in I'd the in the next segment. My guest is Heather Hurwitz. She is the author of "Are We the Ninety Nine Percent?" We'll let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in, or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. We continue with my uh, conversation with the author of Are We the 99%, The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality? And uh, the author is Heather McKee Hurwitz, and Heather joins me by phone. Heather, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you. I wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk uh, at least a little bit um, more about how we move forward um, based on on what you've been able to discover in your research and with the uh, writing of this book. Um, if there's, is there a particular movement like the Occupy movement that can bring all the groups together, whether it's hashtag me too or black lives matter um and and will there always be opposition or is there a way that all people's needs can can uh, um can be addressed uh, one thing that the uh, that the black lives matter movement did uh, that the Occupy movement did not was that they centered the experiences of black people and they, from the very beginning, used the perspective of intersectionality. So the movement was started by three queer black women and this was pretty different from the Occupy movement um, to have those those three women kind of leading it with a lot of experience in feminism. And so many of the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement recognize racial inequality, class inequality, gender inequality um, together. And there's not really that separation. Um, there's also, from what I've seen of the movement, uh, a bit more of reflection when there is infighting, when there's um, uh, grievances among different participants. There was one that, that I studied around um, trans persons and people of gender non-conforming genders um, who didn't uh, identify as either men or women saying, you know, we were talking about brothers and sisters coming together. That doesn't include us. Let's say, how can we be united as siblings? This is kind of the movement speak. And there was um, acceptance of that and real debate about that within the movement that has um, 
had some weight uh, across conferences um, and across different groups. So going forward, it's going to take that intersectional view, having people lead our organizations who may have been more marginal or silent before. I think being black, queer, and women is, uh, you know, not probably your typical leaders and uh, provides a really important view about change when we have people leading who have experiences like um, uh, marginalized leaders. And it takes really looking at the infighting in a movement, intentions, and hearing out each other, and being willing to even stop our forward motion to kind of deal with those tensions and infighting. Um, that's definitely something in the Occupy movement. A lot of the tensions of the movement kind of shifted into these subcommittees and uh, didn't work its way back to affect the overall movement. Um, some of that led to people leaving the movement, and uh, we don't want that for future movements. We want to have more people involved and be united. And and on that, is it possible, is there a way to protect new generations from being infected by the divisions of um, that exist? We have to tell these stories, and even the kind of the uglier stories, the stories of, of infighting and division that we maybe don't want to hear. Uh, of course, this was happening even in you know, the 50s, the 60s, the civil rights movement, as you mentioned, you know, women walking to the side or behind. Um, we don't know of many uh, civil rights leaders who were women. And uh, there's been a lot of um, pushback against that, of course. Um, in the 60s, kind of the new left movement, a lot of w women being harassed or told to do, you know, the traditional make food and type something. Um, so we've come away from that. But I think we need to keep those kinds of histories um, alive. We have to remember the 99% didn't quite work. Uh, we, I don't think that we can have movements just based on class unity and just trying to make changes around class and economics, I don't think that that's going to work anymore. And we need to educate young people um, about that. Thankfully, uh, millennials and even newer generations, they've grown up with intersectionality. They, they have grown up seeing movements for racial justice be um, applauded around the world and I have a lot of hope in that. Well, that's the perfect note to end on. And I, and I actually hate to bring this to a close because it's an important discussion and I'm enjoying um, you sharing it, uh, your thoughts, and uh, talking about uh, your new book, Are We the 99%? The Occupy Movement, Feminism, and Intersectionality by Heather Hurwitz. Heather, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Do you have a website so people can learn more about you and your work, past, present, and future? I do. You can find me at www.arewethe99book.com, and 
the book is also available from Temple University Press. Um, but if you go to my website, uh, you will also find other materials about the book, um, a study guide if you're a teacher and you want to use it in the classroom, um, a whole archive of movement documents and newspapers from the Occupy movement, and a whole lot more. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Heather. It's been a, a pleasure and an honor to meet you and get a chance to talk with you and get to know you a little bit. And uh, good luck with the book and everything else that you're doing. Thank you so much, and thanks for this important conversation. Take care. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. That computer that tore us apart, dear. Automation broke my heart. There's an RCA 503 standing next to me, dear, where you used to be. Doesn't have your smile. Doesn't have your shape Just a bunch of punch cards And light bulbs and tape Dear You're a girl who's soft Warm and sweet But you're only human And that's obsolete Though I'm very fond of that new 503 Automation's not for me. It was automation, I'm told. That's why I got fired and I'm out in the cold. How could I have known when the 503 started in to blink? It was winking at me, dear. I thought it was just some mishap when it sidled over and sat on my lap. But when it said, I love you, and gave me a hug, 
That's when I pulled out. It's plugged. <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.